Welcome to the Teaching and Lectio podcast for the Abbey, a contemplative vineyard church in Columbus, Ohio. You can find previous teachings and our contemplative reading of the scriptures on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at theabbeycolumbus.church. There, you'll also find important announcements, along with the location and time of our all-church gatherings and community groups throughout the city. The Abbey is committed to being a church that helps people notice and nurture the work of God in their own lives, in the lives of others, and in the world around us. Here's this week's message. And into our scripture for today, um, John 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came, running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had seen these things. The word of the Lord. He's risen. Uh, Hey, friends, if you are new with us, uh, my name is Jared, and I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I mean, it's a beautiful Easter morning, and we're going to celebrate. So... Um, If you are new with us, um, you know, you have come into a space where it's probably a little different um, for us this year in that uh, if if you're not up to speed with 
how we have been uh, thinking and managing some transitions. The long story short is this is our last Sunday gathering as a community. We will be doing a celebration service. And so we were sort of praying earlier and I uh, remarked to some of our leaders, I th- we may be the only church in history that has uh, had their last Sunday on an Easter Sunday. And uh, we're going to do this, okay? So, I worked my way through all the stages of grief. I just did it backwards. This is a sentence that has stuck out to me. It's a sentence from a beautiful memoir that I recently read called When Breath Becomes Air. And it's written by Dr. Paul Kalanithi, a neurosurgeon who was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer at the age of 36. And in this book, uh, he describes his journey from his diagnosis effectively to death from becoming the transition from a doctor to a patient as he wrestles with the reality that he's dying. And maybe this is one of the lines that has stuck out to me because I've been in my own journey of grief, which we'll say a little bit more about in a minute. But Paul Kalanithi was a neurosurgeon those last few months of residency, which means he had devoted more than a third of his life to training in a very particular way for a very particular task to care for the brain and the spinal cord, one of the most tender parts of our body. Four years of pre-med, four years of med school, plus postdoc, plus residency, which means he spent 12 years training to become a neurosurgeon. And he was the best and brightest of his field. He was researching new techniques and was being courted by all of the teaching hospitals. And his undergraduate, Stanford, was creating a position just for him with millions and millions of dollars of research And then he started feeling tired. And he thought it was just pushing too hard. But what he realized uh, after some time was it's not just exhaustion. It turned out to be cancer. And he began to work through these stages of grief. But he did them backwards. Because I hope you know nobody works through stages of grief the same. So first was the stages of grief, and then when the cancer prognosis began to kind of shift a little bit, he began to get a little bit of hope. He began scrubbing in for surgery again. He went through one round of chemo. He began to have a little sense of hope, but what really set in was doubt. Doubt that the cancer would in fact recede. Doubt that he would be able to get his mind and his body to work together to perform that task of surgery again. Doubt that he would ever see their baby. His wife was now pregnant. So grief is what happens when what you hope for disappears, and doubt is what happens when what you hope for is a little bit present but feels unbelievable. Doubt is that feeling that the good thing that you've been hoping for is coming to you, but you wonder if it's actually going to reach you or if it's going to last. And death has a way of sending us into doubt and grief. How many of you know that death has a way of doing this? And I'm not just talking about death from cancer. I'm talking about all of the different kinds of things in our life that feel like dying. How many of you know like different kinds of dying that happen in your life? I'm talking about the marriage that is much harder than you thought it would be and the dream of going back to school that feels like it's slipping away a bit and the secure job that you had that now feels shaky 
These are all different kinds of death that we experience through our life. Or the imagined future that you had for your kids or one of your kids, and then they get a diagnosis of some sort. And so now you're looking at their life, and all of the hopes that you had for their life are beginning to also crumble. There are so many ways of dying, and so many ways that some of the things that we dream for and hope for begin to die. And before we get too much further, I just want to name again that here we are on Easter morning celebrating resurrection, which we will get to, by the way. You've got to stay with me on this. Uh, while at the same time as a community, we're living through our own death. And I am aware that this is a very hard season in the life of our community. And we've had lots of conversation over the past month about that. I'm aware that many of us are still working through seasons of grief and working through those stages of grief around the reality that what we have together is beautiful and important and significant and is a fragrant aroma to God. And for reasons that we can't quite get our mind around, what we have together as a community is coming to an end. Some of those ways that we've been hoping together and building together, some of the imagination that we've been sort of stewarding together for seven years is coming to a close. And I am aware uh, that even as I say this very carefully and very tempered with a sense that there's a possibility and a hope for a future for this community, that many of us are awash right now with grief and doubt. Doubt about whether the kind of goodness that we have stewarded in this community that centers itself around the presence of God, is that something that we will ever be able to experience again? I don't know about you, but that's one of the questions that I have been sitting with. So we're carrying some grief and we are carrying some doubt. And our task this morning, the invitation of Jesus and what it really means to follow Jesus in this moment, friends, is to allow ourselves to be carried away by the hope of resurrection. This is what it means to follow Jesus, is that in a moment like this, friends, we live in a story that is built for this moment. We really do. We live in a story of death and resurrection. And so our task this morning is to cling to that sense of resurrection. We could spend our entire time this morning uh, immersed in the story of 2,000 years ago in the early morning hours when two women went to an empty tomb. I mean, the story of resurrection never gets old. We could just completely plant ourselves there and completely try to ignore what's actually happening around us. But I don't think that that would be the way to go. That would, that would feel unsatisfactory, I think. And we could also uh, talk about uh, a lament of our own death that we're facing, and we could sort of get caught up in it. We could nurture the wounds that we're experiencing. We could let ourselves be sad. But here's the thing. We are part of a larger story where on this day throughout the world, our brothers and sisters are intentionally nurturing a very particular kind of hope that began with an empty tomb, and we are going to join them in that, okay? We live in a story that is built for this moment, and so I want to talk with you about grief, and I want to talk with you about doubt, and I want to talk with you about hope, and I want to do this in three scenes that are connected to the resurrection. Are you guys with me? Can we do this? Okay. First scene is grief. In our teaching passage this morning, Jesus was placed, it says, in a borrowed tomb. And what 
was likely happened is that because Jesus died on a Friday and Sabbath is approaching as evening comes, they didn't really have time to give Jesus a proper burial. The, the Sabbath is coming. They, they weren't able to work on the Sabbath. They would not have been able to touch a dead body on the Sabbath. And so they just placed Jesus in this borrowed tomb uh, from a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was probably a wealthy man. And they just held him there overnight and for a full day so that they could come back on the third day to begin to tend to the body and to do the burial ritual. So that's the situation. They leave him there on the Sabbath. And the next morning, a woman named Mary, not the mother of Jesus, by the way, but one of Jesus' followers, Very early in the morning when it was still dark outside, Mary goes to the tomb to get an early start on those burial preparations. She would have been carrying probably a small lantern. She would have been uh, having a basket of herbs and spices that she would have begun to wrap Jesus' body with. And so she is on her way in the early morning hours to tend to the body of Jesus. And I want you to imagine with me a little bit that you are this woman. All day Friday, you spent witnessing the torture of your friend and teacher, your rabbi, someone that had become sort of an older brother to you and a mentor, and you were present for that execution, and the weight of grief through Saturday was really heavy. There's no work to busy yourself with on a Sabbath day. It's just the pain of the injustice of the government getting its way and exerting its power over somebody who's innocent. The weight of grief all day Saturday. I want you to imagine what that was like. Your friend was not a murderer. Your friend was not a thief. He was wrongly accused. He was betrayed and executed all within a really short period. And it happened really quickly. But it, I'm sure, felt excruciatingly long to watch unfold. And she doesn't come to the tomb and see that it's empty and shout with joy, he is risen. So she doesn't have the benefit of the story that we have. She shows up with an empty tomb and she is terrified. She has absolutely no idea what has just happened. And so she runs to the disciples who are more or less hiding. And they're hiding because the government and the religious leaders had consorted together to kill their leader. And they wonder whether they themselves will be next to die. And so they're hiding out. And the gospel writer John makes it really clear in verse 9. He says that they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. And so there's confusion in the midst of this morning. They do not understand that resurrection has to take place. They don't feel like their sins are forgiven. They don't feel any closer to God. They don't feel like the gap between them and God has somehow been closed. All they feel is terror and grief in this moment because where is the body of our Lord? Does this make sense? And so... The fellas, they come running in and they see the empty tomb and they run back to tell the other guys and they leave Mary there and she is weeping. And so all of this is the context for a little part of the story that I want to camp out in a little bit. Mary is outside the tomb weeping. 
and takes one more look inside the tomb, only this time she sees two men inside. And John says that they're angels. He's probably right. They probably were angels. But she just thinks that they're there to tend the tomb. And out of the corner of her eye, she sees what she thinks is a gardener. She assumes that this guy is just coming to, like, clean up. And this one, this gardener, says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And still caught in her grief, she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, if you have stolen his body, just tell me where he is and I will go get him. So you can see right now that Mary is in grief. She is working through the stages of grief. She is confused and she is angry. And she's probably not really wanting to talk to anybody right now. And there's this annoying gardener who shows up and starts asking her all of these questions. And I'm sure he's trying to be helpful. The garden, gardener looks at her and he calls her by name. He says, Mary. And in the midst of her tears and grief, she looks up at him and she says one word, Rabboni, which is Aramaic for teacher. In this moment of grief, they say each other's name. And this, John tells us, is the first moment where Jesus is seen and witnessed for the first time after his resurrection. The first moment of resurrection happens in a moment of grief. While it's still dark outside, by the way. Grief in resurrection. Jesus himself shows up for Mary and reveals himself to her, present to her weeping, present to her questions, present to her confusion, and then he offers her comfort. Resurrection, friends, means so many things. There are so many ways to preach resurrection, by the way. So many ways. But the first thing that it meant for Mary on this day was that resurrection meant presence. It meant that he was present. So friends, this woman was a disciple of this man. She was learning the scriptures from him. She was there when he prayed for people. She learned how to pray from him when he taught her how to pray. Our Father who lives in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They were building something together. And everything that they had been building together, it seemed, was taken away within a just a few short days. And she is grieving and she is confused. And he shows up with the most important thing that he could show up with, which is his presence. He showed up present to her. And he says her name, Mary, because he knew her. And she knew his voice, teacher, because she knew him. And there they were, they were standing in a garden, this new Adam, Christ, beginning to undo the sorrow of Eve that goes all the way back to when the paradise of the first garden was lost. This is what's happening in this moment. He is present to her in the grief. Resurrection is about the presence of God restoring to the humans everything that every kind of death takes away. That's what resurrection is about. And so, friends, again, I know it's a 
a weird Easter morning for many of us, but in your grief and in our grief, what the resurrection means is that he is with us, like right now he's present to us. Scene two, doubt. So Mary leaves the garden and she goes to tell the disciples that she has just seen the Lord. And later on that evening, the disciples were gathered behind closed doors where the disciples were shut in with fear and they were afraid because their teacher had been executed and they thought that they for sure were going to get next. And then Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Hang on to that. They received the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that. He says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins have been forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. John goes on to say, Thomas, who's also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples in this moment. I mean, what a terrible moment to miss out on. Like all of your buddies are in a room and Jesus shows up and you are out. I don't know, you're picking up the pizzas or whatever it is that you're doing. He is not there. He misses out on the moment when Jesus steps into the room. And so the other disciples, when Thomas returns, they say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas's reply is, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Let's stop right there for a second. Thomas is hearing about Jesus's resurrection, but he hasn't yet seen it for himself. You tracking with me, guys? How are you guys doing? You're okay? This is doubt. Doubt is when the good thing that you have been hoping for begins to show itself as a possibility, but you're wondering if it's too good to be true. That's what doubt is. Is the thing that I am really wanting, which I think I can see on the horizon, but I'm not actually quite sure that it's going to get me, is it going to come to me? And friends, one of the things that has been true of this community, one of the things that I love about what we have stewarded these number of years is that this has been a very good and safe place for people who are holding doubts about their faith. I know that for many of you, for years, you've been sitting in this community while something new is being birthed inside of you. The faith I used to have in Jesus, the way I used to pray, the surety that I once had that the story is true. Like I can see little bits and pieces of that coming back to me, but I'm not quite sure if I really, really believe it. I know that many of you in this community have had to wrestle through some of that. I'm starting to pray for things again. I'm believing that perhaps the scriptures actually do speak the word of God. I'm feeling some nourishment in my soul in worship. I'm actually beginning to wonder if maybe that little strange and stale cracker that we eat and dip into that juice might actually contain the presence of God for the healing of my soul and my body. Something is beginning to happen inside of you, and you, you are now wondering Like, is it actually going to happen? Is it going to take root? 
I know that this is where many of you have found yourself in the life of this community over the past number of years. Let me keep reading. John 20 picks back up in verse 26. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was there with them this time. Thank God Thomas is there. (laughs) And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them and he says, peace to you. And then he says to Thomas, put your finger right here. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Doubt is that feeling that the thing you hope for is probably not going to happen. It's when you find yourself in that in-between place of sitting in the reality of what is actually happening right now and what you hope could happen in in the future. And in the midst of doubt, what does Jesus do? He shows up with his presence. He shows up. He offers his wounds to Thomas. He says, listen, man, put your hand right here. Touch my wounds. I'm here for you. I'll give you whatever you need right now because I want you to move from that place of doubt to that place of belief. The thing that Jesus does in the midst of doubt is he shows up with his presence because this is what resurrection means. It means the presence of God. And one of the most interesting things about this passage in John 20 is that when Jesus comes to Mary with his presence in her grief and she recognizes him, she reaches out to hold him and to hug him and to cling to him. And he says, don't grab on to me. I haven't yet ascended to my father. But here for Thomas, he offers his body as evidence. He says, it's real. Put your finger here. Touch my flesh. I want you to believe in what's happening. And listen, I have no idea what the difference is between why he showed up for Mary in this one way and why he shows up for Thomas in this other way. To Mary, he's like, please don't grab on to me. And for Thomas, he's like, you can touch me anywhere you need to. I don't know what the difference between that is other than the fact that eight days have passed. But I do want to say that if you find yourself in a place of doubt, the presence of God is there to help you move from unbelieving to believing. And Jesus is wanting to do for you whatever you need him to do in order to help you make that transition from doubt to belief. Does this make sense? And friends, in the, in the days and the months ahead, as you wrestle through doubt that might come in, here's probably what's going to happen for many of the folks that have been a part of this community, is that the grief is going to begin to subside. And what will likely happen next is that you'll have some doubt rise up inside of you. And I want to just offer you two really practical things as you head into this next season. The first is ask for what you need from God. Ask God for what you need. Thomas was really specific in his request. I just need to touch him. The interesting thing about it is that when Jesus offered, he didn't actually take Jesus up on the offer. We always think that Thomas, because there's artists, 
going all the way back to the Middle Ages that actually depicts Thomas putting his finger in the wound, but the text actually doesn't have Thomas touching it because the presence of God was enough in that moment. And that's the second practical thing I want you to consider is that as you ask for specific things for God to help ameliorate or help your, your, your doubt, I want you to consider the possibility that the presence of God could be enough for you. And so ask for his presence and just get curious about whether that presence of God might be enough for you. The presence of God in worship and in the Eucharist and in one another, that this might be enough for you. Okay, you guys still with me? He is risen. Okay. Scene one was grief, which was met with presence. Scene two is doubt, which is also met with presence. And scene three is hope, which we're about to see is all about presence. So I said that all three scenes would would come out of this resurrection story this morning, but we're going to fast forward a few decades from the story and pick back up on our year-long series in the book of Acts. I can't resist the temptation to tie a bow on it. (laughs) So if you've been with us and journeying with us, we've been in a year-long series on the book of Acts asking two questions. What is the kingdom of God and how does the kingdom come? And throughout the book of Acts, the primary subject of the story, the main protagonist is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that moves the church forward in spite of herself. The Holy Spirit is moving the church forward all of the time. And at some point, the Apostle Paul's story begins to take center stage, not in a way that overshadows the Spirit, but in a way of joining in what the Spirit is doing. And we get this glimpse into the life of one disciple, namely Paul, who is so caught up in the story of death and resurrection that he gives his entire life to spreading the gospel of death and resurrection. All of the things that unfold from Paul's life in the story of Acts is tied to the resurrection story because the way that Paul understood his life now was enfolded into death and resurrection. And so as we read about Paul's journey, his missionary activity, um, this is how we need to read it. In one of uh, Paul's first letters that he ever writes to the church, He writes a letter to the churches in Galatia, and he says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in me. Hang on to that part, too. Christ lives in you. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul is living in the story of death and resurrection. And what happens when Paul lives in the story of death and resurrection? What do you think happens to his story? Death and resurrection. That's what it means to live into the story of death and resurrection. What happens is that he experiences death and resurrection over and over again. This is how he begins to frame and translate his entire life. He's oriented his life around the story of Jesus. And it becomes the the glasses or the lens through which he tries to make sense of his life. And in some places, Paul is persecuted and he's whipped and he's stoned. There's a little bit of death. 
And in other places, he is welcomed and he is received. And there's a little bit of resurrection. So he is shipwrecked on islands. He's imprisoned. He had some cities in which people were healed and came to faith. And there they established churches. And he had other cities where just a few years ago, he established some churches. And they're falling apart now because of fighting and idolatry and weird things happening. And he's having to address the reality that some churches are flourishing and some churches are falling apart. And all of this work we read about in the book of Acts. And then we read Paul's letters And we get his inside story of him narrating his life over time. And in one of these letters, his letters to the churches at Rome, he's trying to explain to them the implications of living a death and resurrection life. He says this in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Because of death and resurrection, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, friends, I want to just double click really quickly on this word glory. Do you guys know what a double click is? Okay. We're going to double click on this word glory because this word glory doesn't mean much to us. I mean, when is the last time you used the word glory? We don't say glory in our, in our culture. And so we got to like unpack this a little bit. It doesn't mean much to us, but for a first century man, Paul, glory has an entire backstory. This word glory is the Hebrew word kavod, and it's mentioned hundreds of times in the scriptures. And it's the scholars they tell us it's actually kind of hard to translate because of how many different ways that it's used. But um, the scriptures they, they they give us this sense of this word glory as a sense of meaning heavy or weighty. So if if you have ever had a moment where somebody asks you, Hey, how are you doing today? and you say, I feel heavy. You're trying to communicate something about the presence that you feel in your life. So this word glory has this sense in the scriptures of feeling heavy or weighty. In fact, in some places, it actually is used to describe what it's like to be around somebody who is very heavy. They have a presence about them. So in the Hebrew scriptures, somebody who is really, really heavy is said to have glory. This is one of the ways that this, that this word glory is used. The other times it refers to the way that some, somebody's presence is there when they are of great significance. Like a king or a dignitary or Taylor Swift. <laughs> so imagine, honestly, imagine if Taylor, do you guys know who Taylor Swift is? Okay. Some of you are like, I have no idea who Taylor Swift is. But imagine if Taylor Swift walked into the room right now. Like imagine what would happen. There would be like a horde of people that would be crowding around her. There would be people who would whip out their phones to take pictures and selfies and all kinds of things. There would be other people that she has brought with her, her entourage, who would be trying to protect her. Because Taylor Swift is somebody 
And if Taylor Swift doesn't do this for you, you can imagine somebody in your life that does do this for you. She has a presence about her that if she shows up in a room, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a sense of all attention is going to be paid on this one person. And so like if a a president visits a city, that president brings with them their kavod. It brings with them their presence, their sense of weightiness. And traffic patterns are redirected because this person has kavod. Does this make sense? This is what glory means. And most of the time when the scriptures talk about the weightiness or this feeling of significance in a room or their glory, they're mostly referring to the glory of God. They're mostly talking about the fact that God is the one that has presence. God is the one that has, a, has sort of a significance or a reputation that follows him. Stay with me here. We're almost done, okay? What Paul says is that we boast in our hope of the glory of God, the kavod of God, the weightiness of God. Why would we do that? Why would we boast in something that belongs to God? The fact that he is weighty and that he has presence. Why would we boast in that? Because God has imparted to us his glory, his presence, and his reputation. When he made us in his image, and when he made us according to his likeness, God gave us glory. So the glory that we have is borrowed glory from God. Does this make sense? And death and resurrection, it means that all of the ways that we have destroyed the glory and the presence and the weightiness of God's presence that he gave us, all of the ways that we've destroyed that glory have been now mended. And Paul goes on to say that this hope for that glory and that presence, it does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. So the reason that our hope in God does not disappoint is because God pours himself into us through the Holy Spirit. This is what resurrection means. When we hope in the presence of God, we are not disappointed because God is not present out there that we have to go search for him. He is present in us and he is present to us because he has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Thank you. We have an amen from this section of the crowd. We're zoned for that, by the way. So friends, in our grief, there is presence. And in our doubt, there is presence. And when we hope in the presence of God, we will not be disappointed because we always have access to the presence of God. Friends, you have access to the presence of God. And this presence, this is what we've been nurturing as a community all of these years. We've been nurturing presence. We've been living in the story of death and resurrection of Jesus, which brings with it presence. One final thought I want to give to you. And it comes from the second century. And you're like, really? In the second century, uh, there's a manuscript that was written that flows out of a community that John, the gospel writer, was stewarding. And it's a, 
It's a manuscript of a liturgy of a feast called Pascha, which is um, another way of talking about Passover. So in the early, earliest of versions of the church, they celebrated everything that we've done over the past week, they celebrated in one feast. It wasn't separated, and they even included Pentecost. It was this whole thing they viewed as one, one giant thing that's happening. And uh, this liturgy was written by a man named Melito of Sardis, and Melito is trying to help people understand one primary thing, which is that the presence of God has been at work in the entire story. And most succinctly, God has been seeding his presence through the entire scriptures leading up to the cross. That's what Melito is trying to help his people understand, which is what I'm also trying to help you understand. It gets summed up and summarized in the cross and the resurrection, and he's been foreshadowing his presence through the entirety of the scriptures. The mystery of the presence of Christ is found in all of the places where people were crying out for God's help. This is what Melito is talking about. And this is what he writes. I'm going to close with this. This presence is our salvation. He's speaking of Jesus when he writes this. And he says, this one, this Jesus, this is the one who in many people endured many things. This is the one who was murdered in Abel. This is the one who is tied up in Jacob and exiled in Joseph and exposed in Moses, slaughtered in the lamb, hunted down in David, dishonored in the prophets. This is the one who made flesh in a virgin, who was hanged on a tree, who was buried in the earth, who was raised from the dead, who was exalted to the heights of the heaven. This is the one who did all of those things. What Melito is trying to help us understand is that he has always been present in these moments, and he will continue to be present to you in your moments because he has poured out his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit. This is the one who now in many people endures many things. This is the one who in Hannah walks the streets of Sullivan Avenue. This is the one who in Rachel sits with struggling teenagers. This is the one who in Heather listens to the stories of addicts. This is the one who in Christie prays for the women on Sullivan Avenue. This is the one who in Jamie sits at the hospital and in Corey cares for his family. This is the one who in Thomas sits with the dying and in Tori bakes bread for anyone who will ask her to. This is the one who is in Naomi leading us in worship and in Sadie longing for justice. This is the one who is in Rebecca tending to the soil and the earth in our neighborhood and in Aaron as she longs for healing for those who suffer and in the other Aaron as she leads people to become better leaders. This is the one who lives in your life through the Holy Spirit. It's the Jesus that was resurrected. That's the one that lives inside of you. And what this means is that the presence of God is with you wherever you go. I want you to stand. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to do what we always do, which is invite the presence of God to be with us. And we are going to worship and we are going to pray because we are part of a story that far exceeds our own story. 
So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and that you would fill this house of worship, God, that you would be among us and that you would fix all of the things that are broken, Lord. I pray, God, that you would bring a spirit of worship and that we would be present to our hearts that are longing for you. In Christ's name, amen. Um, also, just to let you know, I think some of you know this, but we are going to be, you know, hosting some spaces in people's homes over the next few weeks. So please just pay attention to the website for more information. And then, of course, we will have a final celebration um, at the, either the end of May or early June. So just keep, keep watch for that. Uh, but I just want to invite you to open your hands if you feel comfortable as I send you off with a final blessing. Beloved community, I bless you to live as a people with resurrection hope. I bless you to keep noticing and nurturing the work of God in your lives and in the world around you. May the Lord bless you and keep you and shine his face upon you. And may the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Amen.